we're not all the same. We're not all coders. We're not going to all interact with Bitcoin the same exact way. So it's important for different people with different experience sets to come together and actually look at some of this stuff. The more people that are using the software, the more eyes on it, the better it is. I think it's very powerful too to get out of the mindset of, oh, I can only work on Bitcoin if I'm a programmer. So in your opinion, are we working on Bitcoin right now by having this conversation or is this too meta? I think it's all good for Bitcoin. No, I definitely think this is working on Bitcoin. Welcome back to the Freedom Footprint Show, a Bitcoin philosophy show with Knut Svanholm and me, Luke the Pseudofan. Today, our guest is Fractal Encrypt, the Bitcoin artist who has created amazing works such as the Bitcoin Full Node Sculptures and the Time Chain Codex. In this episode, we discuss Fractal's approach to art, the role of art in Bitcoin, and how anyone can contribute to Bitcoin in their own way. There's a special story there. But before we dive in, just a reminder that the best way to support the show is to stream us some sats or send us a boost on a value-for-value podcasting app like Fountain or Breeze. And if you're on YouTube, don't forget to like the episode, subscribe to the channel, and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. And finally, we want to thank today's sponsors, Orange Pill App, Wasabi Wallet, and Consensus Network. All their information is in the description. We'll be talking a little more about them later. And so, without further ado, here is Fractal Encrypt on the Freedom Footprint Show. Hi, Fractal. Welcome to the show. Happy to have you. Thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, everyone's favorite Bitcoin artist is here, Fractal Encrypt. As we know, he's an anonymous guy, so we can't see him, but we see the screen saying Fractal Encrypt there, so he's really there. If anyone doubts that he's here, he is. We're pretty sure. Yeah, we're pretty sure. Verified, um, verified. <laughs> well, not verified. You could also be using chat GPT. I mean, you're, you're pretty good with the, the AI stuff. Maybe, maybe you just cloned yourself somehow virtually and <laughs> I just pressed play on a pre-recorded AI loop. So <laughs> it'll keep y'all interested for a little bit, but now I'm going to keep working on art over here while the AI keeps you entertained. You know, we'll yeah. see how it all plays out at the end. Yeah, I hope we're not stealing time from you making art because that would be a, a, a sin, if anything. <laughs> no, I actually just finished a project that it's, I feel like I've been working on this for pretty much since September of last year. It started with that graphic novel uh, that I was doing, the Time Chain Codex, which was like a Bitcoin AI novel. So it kind of started all the way back then. And just today, just before this started, I was kind of putting the last, last touches on a, a set that kind of presents that that graphic novel way that I'd like kind of like a museum level type display. So yeah, I just oh, yeah. not being, not being taken away from art right now. It actually all worked out that I was like, okay, today's the spring equinox. I feel like this is the day to finish. Sometimes, you know, like I deal with this, the artist is never done type thing. And um, I don't know, I think at this point I was like, okay, this is a good day to finish. Yeah. That's a, that's a thing about creativity. You have to have, you have to set you know, deadlines and, and frames for yourself. Otherwise you could just work on something forever, right? That's actually the thing that I've been dealing with because I pretty much, 
thought I was finished with this project. I released like a book cover. I don't know if you saw a video. I did it around I Genesis saw it. Day. It's stunning okay. as always. Oh, yes. I even sent you a preview, a little, little, yeah, little DM before. Did. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, before everyone else saw it. So, yes, I, I thought I was basically done at that point. But when I released it, I, you know, luckily no one bought it right away from me. So it gave me the chance to sit with it. And, you know, I was like, you know what? I actually think like I could do something better. It pretty much ended up just throwing that whole thing out and then starting over again. And while I was doing this, I was hearing you in my head because last time we had a conversation, we were talking about how perfect is the enemy of done. And I was saying, yeah, you know, you got to just get to at least 95% good and then then just let it go. And you said, I don't believe that you actually do that. I said, <laughs> I said, no, no yeah, I do. I do. But I was looking at my my piles of miscuts and just to get just to get one good key, I, you know, it took me a good month and like hundreds of little pieces that were all done wrong and, you know, tons of hours just to get one little piece. But it, it's fine because in the end, I think it's just the result that you get. So I, I definitely have a problem with this. When are we done? Yeah, it's actually a key to a book. I had, as I was saying, I had made this Bitcoin graphic novel called the oh. Time Chain Codex and I wanted to make a cover for, uh, for the book, like a sculptural cover. So if we end up meeting some aliens one time, we can give them like a physical copy of, of our time chain. So that was kind of my idea there. And it kind of blossomed from that. So the key actually unlocks the book. The book is my first sculpture that actually moves. That was something that I've always wanted to do was make a moving sculpture. In fact, anytime anybody ever saw one of my other sculptures, that was the first question they would ask me is, does it move? And I would always have to say, no, I don't know how to do that yet. So that was one of my my goals here was to try to, you know, create some kind of a functional motion within the sculpture. So I was actually able to create like a, a locking mechanism. It was neat because I, I get to learn all kinds of things about gears. And also it's a uh, intergalactic time chain comic book. So I was able to use a planetary gear system as a kind of like engineering pun. And uh, yeah, yeah. So yeah. So then once I had that, then I needed a key to open it. So originally I had made like a very simple wood key that I was using to open and close the the book and, and it worked good. But uh, I kind of had it in my head that maybe I would do a fancier version. You know, maybe that was too simple. You know, it's just, this one's a stepping stone to make sure it works and uh, then I'll get to it later. But I kind of never did. And at one point I did a, a display and my wife was like, no, you know, that key doesn't look right. You, you need to do something with that. And I was like, oh, maybe I do need to do something with that. So, yeah. so that's, a kind of a development where I'd say, okay, actually, now let me think about the key. And then the key almost became its own sculpture in itself. So, you know, that I think like each little part is a, is a part of the journey because it's like, when do I stop here? So, okay, I needed the key. Now I have the key, but then the key looked so cool to me that I was like, I can't just have this sitting here. So I needed to make a fancy box that it goes in. So that I haven't shown to anybody, but I have everything done. I have a box, I have a book, I have a book stand and I have the key. And I think it will all like present very nice hopefully uh, a couple of questions about it like there's a qr code on it um uh, yes and wh where does that take you or is that an ellen url or what is it just like how the bitcoin infinity keys each key had a public and a private key yeah. that was related to the specific key edition so what that is is that's a, the public key that goes along with the private key for the number one edition of that book so the the book that's inside the book cover i did I did an edition of 210 comics. The very first one is the one that's going in this thing. So that's, and, and for each of the comics, I made a public key and a private key QR code. So 
Uh, it's kind of like a forgery proofing for the people so they can prove that they have one that there's no way that you can actually know the private key to the public key. The public keys are public uh, to everybody, but the private key only the owner of the comic book has. So I actually put physical copies of the of those okay. QR codes in there. And uh, that was actually a, a fun thing to to generate those QR codes because to do that, first I needed to generate a whole shitload of uh, these keys. And so I used AI to actually uh, modify a key ge- a vanity key generator program that I was using. And that thing pretty much made what was impossible possible. I was able to get 210 unique keys in an exact order, all because of this AI thing. And that just changed the game for me. So that was one level of using the AI. And then the next thing I was like, okay, now that I have the keys generated, I needed to generate QR codes for them. And how do you generate QR codes? You can't just like go on the internet and start feeding public and private keys. Well, the public key is fine, but the private keys you can't feed into some stranger internet thing. So I actually had the AI write me a software that could just convert the text into a, that can convert the text into an SVG file that then I could print and engrave Uh into things. So yeah, Yeah. like the whole process was something that I think it was neat because the comic was made with AI, but then like I was able to use AI to do a whole bunch of these other steps. And the fact of the matter is like, I kind of actually started the whole project because I thought like the AI art was dumb. You know, I saw Gigi kind of posting about it and I was like, eh, that looks kind of crappy and not really that interesting. And I think he's like, oh yeah, (laughs) you, you should play with this. So, so I think I spent a weekend messing with it and I was like, ooh, this is actually neat because I saw other people doing things where they weren't just taking a picture. They were actually using it as a tool. So instead of it just, okay, here's an image output and that's the end of it. Like people were making things that they're making shirts, making tarot cards, making interesting, like real world items. And I think that really caught my attention. And I saw somebody doing a comic and I was like, oh, that really, that really kind of grabbed my attention. I was like, oh, you know, I've always wanted to make a comic, you know, that's like a lifelong dream that I've had. And you know, just I've always read comics since a kid and I'm just very slow as an artist. So for me to sit there and actually draw out a comic would have taken so long that it's almost hard to contemplate, you know, like years probably. So I was able to sit there and in 21 days generate an entire, you know, like 132 page graphic novel. So that was pretty mind blown by that, by just basically yeah, starting yeah. out with the premise of this is stupid and then flip, <laughs> flipped it into like, I'm I'm pulled into this weird world. Can we maybe um, just frame a little bit of context for anyone who's not familiar with you, Fractal? Just a, just a little bit. Yeah, yeah. We skipped the intro that part here. Oh, <laughs> like can, share? Yeah. Can you t- can you tell us and our listeners a little bit about yourself? And of course, with the understanding that you're uh, anonymous. Uh, I think probably first and foremost, you know, I'm a Bitcoiner and I'm interested in Bitcoin software and and specifically like uh, Bitcoin Core um, and and how to use that, I, I guess, as a tool of self sovereignty. And then I'm You're also an artist as well, aren't you? I did get a core contribution last year on Thanksgiving. That was just that was probably one of the coolest things I've ever done in my life was to actually get <laughs> my name on a merge PR. So just, yeah, 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 that's so cool. Okay, yeah, and you know what that actually was? That's a really good example of how you know anybody can contribute to Bitcoin. Um, and I, I guess we're getting away from the intro, so let me try to back up. So basically, you know, Bitcoin are interested in you know actually using the software and. Also, I, I got so interested in it and how it worked. It just was so elegant to me that it really just caught my attention. And I've always been an artist. At, you know, I've always done art since I was a little kid. But I, I take it very seriously in the sense that it, it tends to take over my life. Like I don't, I get dragged into these projects and um, well, I drag myself into them in essence, just my 
I have something in my composition that likes to create something uh, that doesn't already exist, but I want to do something that like is important to me. So for a long time, I, I, I did like a art about psychedelics. And then I think around 2017, uh, maybe December of that month was the first time I did a Bitcoin art. And from there on out, I think I've basically been doing the Bitcoin stuff pretty much exclusively as the art thing. So is that a pretty good introduction? Is there other stuff I, I'm missing? <laughs> Yeah, I can, I can do a brief summary of our uh, our history together. Like the first time Absolutely. I reached out to you was when I saw the full node statue, the very first full node statue at some exhibition in Miami, I believe. Yes. And so I'm I'm sitting in in Sweden at the time, and you're in Miami, and I see this in my Twitter feed, and I and you post a little video, and one of the rings says sovereignty through mathematics. So I reach out to you and I'm, I'm uh, and I ask you, dude, are you aware that my book title is in your, on your fantastic piece there? And and you reply like, dude, I was listening to it when I made that thing, and we've been friends ever since. Basically, that's our that's our story, and we've been collaborating on a lot of things and in, inspiring one another. I think and. Uh, uh, looking forward so much to seeing you again in Miami, uh, Fractal. We're going to have a great time this year, too. Can't wait. Yeah, I was really glad you weren't mad at me for uh, stealing your your title and throwing it on the sculpture that first that first time that you reached out. You know, it's like one of those situations where, where they say uh, it's better to beg for forgiveness rather than ask for permission. <laughs> so, you know, I was really glad that, that you were pleased. So, and, and certainly that's led to many, many cool times. So certainly happy for for that little decision i i certainly love the sovereignty through mathematics meme in, in my mind that's one of the most powerful things uh, you know that we have as bitcoiners is the fact that you can have sovereignty through mathematics that to me just mind-blowing when i think about it so it is like the it's the one of the things i i think about the most uh, nowadays about bitcoin is like how this uh, idea of you are your bitcoins, because b if you remember your seed phrase, if you memorize it and you destroy every other copy of it, you, you literally are your bitcoins because they're all in your head. But I've been thinking more and more about that lately and that that applies to every, every single bitcoin because all owning a bitcoin is, is like you're not really owning it and you're not e even in possession of it. You just know a secret. Because the information yeah, you could just unlock. You could just unlock the ability to move it from one place on the chain to another. Is really all you could, all you actually have the ability to do. It's just letting someone else keep another secret, and you than you keeping your secret. Secret. So my point is that that and I think I'll in incorporate this into many of my talks this year. The spoiler. Well, alert. then you have the ultimate oxymoron: is that you know you 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 can't actually own this yet. It's the only thing you can actually own. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's one of those d dualities, like Bitcoin is for enemies and Bitcoin is love and all, all of this stuff. And don't trust verify enables us to trust one another on a whole different level. Sure. Uh, but, but just this notion of everyone who who's even touching Bitcoin in any shape or form is that Bitcoin. <laughs> Absolutely. So Bitcoin is, we're not all Satoshi, we're all Bitcoin. <laughs> like, yeah. We're, we're all... All of us are. I mean, even no coiners are Bitcoin in a meta sense because they interact with Bitcoiners and exchange goods and services with Bitcoiners. So it's like, it's insanely deep when you start falling down that rabbit hole. 
And, yeah. Absolutely. And then when you think of the, you know, the chain as a source of truth, then it kind of kind of puts you as a as a sense of as a piece of truth within that, which which I guess, but we're failable. So that's that's why it's good to have a consensus rules. Yeah, at least a part of us cannot be untruthful. <laughs> sure. Because it is a part of us and it's the part that cannot be corrupted. Yeah. And when you put it that way, it's like insanely powerful. And yeah, but back to your art. Yeah, then there was the <laughs> Infinity Keys, uh, which I'm insanely proud of uh, <laughs> and happy that that happened. But 21 private and 210 public keys. But uh, yeah. Well, no, that the key stories is the key story is definitely relevant even to the even to the stories today, um, especially okay, that um, the Bitcoin core contribution was was really part of the thing when I did the Bitcoin Infinity key release was, as we said, I kind of mined vanity addresses, which is just like kind of how you can mine a Bitcoin block. You basically put CPU power or GPU power that you have uh, into findings, you know, key pairs. And you can define what you want the key pair to be. So I, ha I basically just had mined very specific keys so that they would be publicly available and people could actually go on chain and look at it. And I even put like a little message about the infinity keys. But one of the things I thought would have been cool, I put Bitcoin in each key, a little, little amount of Bitcoin in each key. And actually the amount of Bitcoin that I put in there was related to the number of the key as well. So one of the things I would have liked to do is actually create a cool multi-sig treasure hunt. So if somebody actually was able to either collude with 20 other Bitcoiners that had keys, or if they were a serious collector and bought 21 of the keys and actually had it, then they would be able to get some kind of hidden treasure that was hidden in a multi-sig. But because of, I guess, just the way that Bitcoin worked at the time, the multi-sig maximum number of keys was 20. And I wanted to do a 21 of 210 keys. So there was no way to put 210 keys in a multi-sig, like 20 was the very max that I could do. But when they released Taproot, which was basically shortly after the keys were done, I'd say about seven months after that project was done. So it wasn't possible at that time. But now that I have a new project, I was able to actually, you know, learn about this. So I was able to figure out that. And the way that I figured it out was that somebody broke lightning. You know, if you guys remember, Burak had submitted a transaction that was like a 998 of 999 multi-sig. And yeah, that broke LND. And as soon as I saw that, the, the post-mortem on how this happened, I realized like, oh, how did he do this like huge multi-sig? Because... Like if he could do a 998 of 999 multi-sig, then I could easily do 210, you know, a 21 of 210. Like, so, so I just realized like all of a sudden the, the impossible became possible because of, you know, taproot in this instant. So I start looking into how did he do this? I actually asked him and he wouldn't tell me. Uh, because, which I understand, you know, it broke LND. He doesn't know what my intentions are. I could be malicious and <laughs> trying to do something bad also. So that's fine. So I asked all around, I posted on Twitter and, you know, Hey, somebody teach me how to do a, you know, tap script multi-sig and no, nobody really would. So I, in essence, I just had to teach myself. So I was like, well, first let me figure out how to write. Cause for any time I do a Bitcoin transaction, I like to write it myself. I like write, write it out in notepad so I can actually see what it is and, you know, control the whole thing. So first I said, let me figure out how to do a, just a regular old multi-sig transaction. So I went online, I found out how to do that. And you know, this stuff changes over time. You know, some of the commands change, but it's, it was relatively easy to figure out how to do that. But then when I wanted to move from this regular multi-sig into the, the more complicated tap script multi-sigs, 
I had to start getting into the documentation and reading all this stuff and how it works. And I was trying the same things that work with regular multi-sig and it wasn't working. But luckily there's something called Stack Exchange where basically you can go and ask very technical Bitcoin questions. And basically some of the people that are writing the, the code for Bitcoin Core will actually answer your questions there. So I, you know, I, I posted a question like, hey, what's going on? How can I actually create this, this transaction? And Peter Willie actually came and gave me an answer and he said, hey, well, you know, the functionality is not released yet, but soon we're going to be releasing it. And here's how you do it. And he, he gave the exact steps on how to do it. And he didn't realize this, but I had done this like release candidate testing when Bitcoin Core 24 was going to pre-release. Uh, they asked people to help test it out and see if they could find any bugs in it. I looked at it. I'm not like really a coder or anything, so, but I tested it out. They have, a, they have a guide that you can follow and see if you find any bugs. Everything pretty much worked perfectly for, for me in that. But what that meant was that I had this pre-release version of the software that would do exactly what Peter Willie said. So I didn't even have to wait for anything. As soon as he gave me the steps, I was able to go and create the 21 of 210 transaction right away. So I was like, oh, shit, this is awesome. And then I realized very quickly that I didn't know how to spend from it because like the way that you spend from a regular multi-sig wasn't working. You know, the commands just didn't work. So I went right back to Stack Exchange. I said, okay, cool. Like your, your instructions work perfectly. I able to make the transaction, but now I can't spend it. And he said, well, you know, you have to use uh, PSBTs for all things that are tap free. You can't just you know, it's, it doesn't work like the way that normal multi-sig works. Okay. So I know how to do PSBT. So I basically set up the PSBTs. I get everything um, set up and it's, I think like it should be working, but it's not. So I was like, what the heck? So I, I try like four times. I basically lock up a bunch of Bitcoin. Uh, that's uh, It's not real Bitcoin. It's like testnet Bitcoin in essence. I lock up a bunch of Bit testnet Bitcoin in, uh, in these addresses and I can't spend from them. So I actually post... Again, and I go back to Stack Exchange and say, okay, now, like now I have this, I follow the instructions, I'm doing what you're saying. But for some reason, my PSBT is not like finalizing. Like it's not, once everything's combined, it's just not doing this final step where it will sign it. So I post and then they actually say, well, you actually had discovered a bug here in Bitcoin, you know, in the pre-release version, of course, and now we're going to go fix it. So they actually went and fixed a bug that that I found because I'm an art project. Like I'm just an artist. I didn't like, I was just trying to do this because I, I thought it was cool for my art project. And it actually ended up helping everybody that uses Bitcoin by finding this weird, like obscure ass bug that like, who knows, you know, who knows who would have run into that. But just one little thing, I was able to actually just help because it aligned with my interests. So I, I thought that was a really cool way to, to come about that. And that wasn't even the merged PR that I got that like, that was actually like written by Andy Chow. He, he, he did that. Like the, the PR that I got was more like a kindergarten, the help menus for stuff. It would, it, the new way that I learned how to do this, this taproot multi-sig was not listed in the help. So that tells you how to do all the other type of, of transactions, a regular multi-sig, pay the witness script, but there was no taproot descriptor in there. So I basically just said, Hey, this should be in there. I wrote it up and. Um, so some of the contributors actually, Andreas helped walk me through the whole process and, uh, yeah, it was really neat because I got to compile Bitcoin core for myself and from, from source code for the first time and see what that means. Because I had actually made a change to Bitcoin by adding this help menu thing in there. I was able to compile it with my change and actually see like Bitcoin with my stuff in it. Like, and, and it was just that such a, 
eye-opening Goose moment. Bump. Yeah, it's like Goosebumps. It was. Moment. It was. It's like no one in the world like can see this. And it actually shows how you can just change your own Bitcoin software if you want. You know, it's like you just change the parameters, compile it, and you have your own software. So if you want to make a change, non-consensus change, you go do it. And it's just so crazy. And then, but now today, anybody that opens up that help screen, uh, they're going to see my little message in there. That's so cool. But, but this sort of speaks to how, how Bitcoin connects to everyone and, and to different people. I remember when I first got into Bitcoin and like started being sort of public about it, I, I thought my, my background in, in shipping would be to, to my disadvantage because I had no background in neither computer networks or uh, economics or anything like that. But as time, as time passes, you figure out that that's actually to your advantage. Be, being an oddball is, is good for Bitcoin because it's based around division of labor. And the, the more of it there is, the, the better we function as a, as a whole. Absolutely. Like we're not all the same. We're not all coders. We're not going to all interact with Bitcoin the same exact way. So it's important for different people with different experience sets to come together and actually look at some of this stuff. The more people that are using the software, the more eyes on it, the better it is. And, you know, it's like I reported that because it worked you know, it's going to work better for me. So it's, you know, you're self-incentivized to do this. So I think it's very powerful too, to just to, to get out of the mindset of, oh, I can only work on Bitcoin if I'm a programmer. I can only work on Bitcoin if I'm X, Y, Z. You know, I think coming at it from an artist is a very orthogonal direction, you know, like really like there's not much related to Bitcoin that could be related to art unless you, unless you, you see it that way. So in your opinion, are we working on Bitcoin right now by having this conversation or is this too meta? I think it's all good for Bitcoin. No, I definitely think this is working on Bitcoin. And the reason that I say that is because sometimes some of these conversations, they'll have a little one sentence thing or a little one phrase thing that will end up sticking with me for years. So you just never know. Uh, so for me, it, it's important. Uh, I don't know if that's working on Bitcoin or working on myself. Um, but I definitely find value from these conversations because really there's not too much time I get to speak to anybody who's interested so much in Bitcoin in the real world. I tend to be relatively reclusive, as you know, uh, so I don't really get a lot of interactions with people and I don't like most of my interactions are text-based through Twitter. So I, I do find a lot of value to these, these live discussions. I don't do them too often. So I really like get a lot out of them when I do.
So what what's next for you, Fractal? What what, what are you um, what are you working on uh, after these keys? Like, what, what what's the roadmap? Well, I mean, it's I'm not really sure because I don't actually know where it is either. So you know, I've been working on this one project, and um, usually when I'm working on something, I'm not I can't think too far ahead into you know what's going to come next. I do have several unfinished projects that that I can pull from, but I'm not sure where I'm going to go next because. The Bitcoin conference is coming up in May, so I'm not sure if I what I'm doing for that. So most likely, I have to figure that out. If if anything, I've been like a little unsure with just the way that you know some of this has been run recently, especially with the way that I don't know, like Bitcoin Magazine has been with the ordinals and some of this stuff. I guess like it just is what it is. But I'm still kind of deciding where my place is and all that is if there is one for me. But I guess as far as art stuff goes, who knows? I think I'll, uh, yeah. I'll find my way. I, I know I know how it is. Like you, you can never know what your next project is when you're a creative mind. Like that, it will reveal itself to you at some point, right? Uh, yeah. Speaking of ordinals, like curious to hear your opinion about this. Uh, we talked about this before, like that you are your bitcoins and you're just uh, keeping a secret. And uh, but. The, the thing people have to realize is that you you cannot you can be your bitcoin but you cannot be a J, a, a jpeg but the the uh, whatever the ordinal does like uh, or the inscription uh, sure. i don't even know the right wording here but the the it, it it might prove that you have paid for this thing that cannot be owned at some point at in time uh the, the or you paid something for this thing that can be infinitely copied and is infinitely copied by just being on everyone's node. I mean, in essence, the same, the same functionality that enabled me to do those things that I was so excited and thought were really cool is the same functionality that, that has invited this, this weirdness in with the ordinals and the inscriptions. And, um, I think in the end, it's just like any other NFT instantiation that we've seen to date is. It's not what it's marketed to be, you know, like they tell you, oh, it's, it's on chain forever, but then it turns out you need some secondary software that then reads the chain and it indexes it in a certain way and it can break if it reorgs and whatever they tell you an NFT is, in my experience, it's just always a lie. Um, so they're at least can being consistent and continuing that, that solid trajectory. But I think at a deeper level, I think it's interesting to look at that the taproot changes because as I was doing a lot of this stuff with taproot, I was coming across people that were hesitant about the changes for Taproot because it, it breaks backwards compatibility. So there's a lot of like, um, in the past we would talk about, you know, what about the guy in the coma? He goes in the coma, he wants to come out and use his, you know, Bitcoin and, uh, some of the stuff are actually, you know, so it should be backwards compatible. So as of 24 version 24.01, I guess at that point, then it's really broken some of the old things. So for example, the old multi-sig ways that I said, you know, it had a code called dump private key or dump priv key. That just doesn't work anymore in, in core. Just that that code is deprecated. It doesn't work anymore. So you can't actually dump your private keys. What you have to do now is actually take out descriptors. And so descriptors are what they're using instead of private keys to basically be a little more precise about the wallet. And there's all kinds of reasons why they believe that this is important and why it actually makes things easier. But there's a, people on both sides of it. And some people say, well, yeah, it makes it easier to do shitcoiny things on Bitcoin. And I do think like this witness script, witness data exploit type deal that's happening because the ordinals 
it is an interesting outcropping of that. It just just shows that it's very important to be conservative with changes in Bitcoin. You know, I think like once you make changes, it's hard to roll those back, but it certainly has precedent for that. But I think all things are really good for Bitcoin in the end, and it's just a learning learning thing that happens out in out in production. But you know, in the end, I think it's nothing to worry about or nothing to be concerned about. It's like not no effect for Bitcoiners or people that are interested in the monetary policy of Bitcoin. It's just basically a nothing burger. The only concern is, yeah, okay, it has increased data storage concerns, which I have like so many nodes running. Like, I guess I could be sensitive to that, but I think I bought like a two terabyte USB stick the other day for so cheap. It was, you know, ridiculous. So, I mean, that, that would store the chain in, in my pocket. How much is a nothing burger in Miami these days? Man, they're getting expensive, dude. Inflation's <laughs> crazy. Nothing yeah, burger costs like crit- fucking a lot. It's, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because I saw nothing burgers on many of the menus in Miami as well. And they were, yeah, it's pricey. Bitcoin needs to be conservative. There's no other way. Like, yeah, but I guess the taproot thing, it happened. Uh, that we're here to observe what happens rather than to try to change it. So uh, it's just something we'll have to live with. But yeah, as you say, it's it's not a problem in the long run. Time space. I think it's like an IQ test. You know, people that are yeah, yeah. spending all their time and energy on this are basically going to probably reap exactly what you'd expect they would. And and that's fine. You know, Bitcoin tends to teach hard lessons. <laughs> and, it does. Uh, and, and in that sense, it's better than they do it on some rug bully shitcoin chain that, that's just going to live up to the promises even less. I've I've had a couple of debates with people uh, about uh, that have the opinion that NFTs are like all art is in the eye of the beholder, and it's just up to the buyer of the art to to decide what whatever they want to pay for it. But as you say, and I, I totally agree with this, that the problem is not that the subjective nature of value, because that's present not only for art, uh, art but for literally everything. So, so I'd say the problem is the false marketing that all NFTs are being advertised as, as something they're not, uh, and in in that sense, it, they are scammy, uh, and that's that's why we dislike them so much. I think that's exactly the issue: is not whether NFTs are art or digital art is art. Digital art, without question, is is art. You know, there's extremely talented digital artists, and 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 there's nothing wrong with with that. What's wrong with NFTs is, is multiple layers. One, anybody who issues a token in expectation of taking other people's Bitcoin, like there's a word for that. You know, we call it shitcoining. You know, like you're basically issuing a shitcoin. So there's like that uh, level of it. But even even without that, you know, in many cases, it's the ownership is so so beyond questionable. Like um, one of the things that Ordinals at least does is it puts the data, you know, and ties it actually to the token in some way. Although the way that the tokens are created and indexed is also then becomes fudged and super weird. So that's the problem is that the things are never what you expect them to be because they market them to you as one thing and, and, and it's just not. So at a very base level, if you have a piece of art on your wall, it's one thing. If you have an NFT that you own in your wallet, would that actually have, if it's on Ethereum, for example, that's controlled by a smart contract. And then somebody has an admin key to that and they can actually just take that fucking token away from you and reassign it to their buddy if they want. That can't happen with the art on my wall. So there's all kinds of questionable things about NFTs, the very least of which is the art. Now, the art thing 
that's really like subversive. And I talk about this sometimes. It's just that like these people with the free money sources, like they're, they're at the top of the shitcoin pyramid. So they actually have like a whole bunch of these free things. If you think about it, when they buy NFTs, they're almost like training the artists and incentivizing them to then become cheerleaders for their pre-mined shitcoin and, and like create like a utilization yeah. uh, myth for their underlying token. So it's like you become almost like enslaved to these people because now they're like pay- paying to, to fund your life and your and your creative um your creative outputs and stuff, and you actually transform your outputs to fit the narrative of this weird convoluted thing so i don't know i th- yeah, think there's the, layers to nfts i think it goes even deeper the, the first and foremost there's no such thing as a digital token the word makes no sense uh, when you know that everything on a computer is copyable like bitcoin isn't there, there there are no tokens it's just a shared ledger a ledger can function uh, apparently like bitcoin does but but a token cannot like it's it's bullshit from uh, from the very start and I remember also, even if it had worked, so like the first time I heard about NFTs, there's a couple of years back, and they they marketed them as being good for the artist, since the artist could Always. Pro- programmably get a 10% cut every time a, a piece of art was sold mm-hmm. to someone else. And you could do that by attaching an NFT to physical art or whatever. But But even there, I think this stems from a misunderstanding of economics and what ownership is because if i buy a piece of art i don't want to be obligated to give like 10 percent of it away to regardless of who it is even if it's the artist the, the time then i don't really own it i own 90 percent of it and you so know that- the market has actually shown that people agree with you because those artist royalties in the ethereum nft world have been very volatile and, and controversial over pretty yeah. much since you're talking about for the past few years. But at this point, the the marketplaces that are doing it are basically like, hey, sorry, y'all, like uh, people aren't buying the ones that, that want to help pay the artists. They only want the ones that they can sell and flip and keep all the money. So we're going to kind of phase out of those course. artist royalties. And, you know, the other shady thing about that is almost all that happens within walled gardens. So it's not that, okay, if you sell your Ethereum token anywhere on Ethereum, it's going to it's going to respect this 10 percent, you know, token thing it's like no it don't, that only happens within within the walls of their smart contract so as soon as you sell it outside their walled garden then it's like doesn't work all of a sudden in this point it should even if this if if there was such a thing as a digital token and even if this mm-hmm. all worked as as they claim it does then like you say like the ex- economic is, uh, ex- incentives for buying a piece of art that you can only own 90% of is of course going to drive the price down pretty quickly because no one's going to want that. If if you buy art, you want you want to own the thing. <laughs> all the all the all the NFT narratives are questionable to me. As soon as you give any bit of scrutiny to the narrative, they begin to fall apart, and it's just like, what is actually going on? <laughs> you know, and it's like it's like anything else. Follow the money, and then then you'll start to see, you know, what's going on. Then again, I think the fiat fiat world has made fine art uh it, it has skewed the market in fine art because like th- that's one of the places that all the money flows into in in a fiat thing but when you start accumulating everything but money to keep the value of your money then then like the uh the things that go up most in value are are fine art and apartments in london and tokyo and new york and so on 
So, so, so that market in itself is pretty, pretty weird when you can buy modern art that some hack did made. By, That's by... a super point is, yeah, the regular art world is actually just as fiat or more so uh, than the, the, the NFT stuff is just mostly scammy. I think like probably the real art world tends to be that way too, where they have just things that are just, you know, it's, it's for show it's created and, and you're, you know, you're, you're part of the audience for that and you're, and yeah. the whole thing is a marketing thing. I think one of the most interesting views on the art, the regular art world was from Safety, where he, he basically told, told me or in a book or whatever it was, was that, uh, that he was saying that the CIA kind of funded the, the modern art movement with Jackson Pollock and, and Roscoe and those type of things. And, and I, I guess that's relatively proven. I like looked that up because it was very interesting to me. And then there's a whole bunch of documentation on intelligence, uh, agency, uh, basically trying to prop up uh, the entire modern art movement and that to me was extremely fascinating because if you just think about it you put some kind of low low effort art bunch of splatters or just a whole i'm just going to paint this whole thing yellow and the whole fucking thing yellow and then we're going to sell it for 40 million dollars like a lot of fucking black ops you can pack in this painting you know what i'm saying so i could see how that that is a thing and then i you know i guess in some ways it's just that type of thing bleed out into the rest of the culture because when you know when you have some level of of facade where these people are just doing it as a game some people don't realize it and then they like oh man this this painting that's yellow entirely yellow it's like actually i'll spend 40 million on that too my favorite part of that chapter in the bitcoin standard is when he calls pollock a, a cardboard molester yeah yes and i know that that people have mixed feelings about that chapter because it's uh at the end of the day, what you think about art is still subjective, like like anything else of value. And like, sure, there might be a connection between low time preference and Michelangelo and uh, high time preference and, and Jason Pollock, but it's still, uh, yeah, the, the 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 connection might not be as as deep as we think. I mean, th there is low time preference art. It, even in the fiat world, like the band tool, for instance, like you, you uh, remind me a lot of the band tool. You're like the <laughs> Bitcoin artist equivalent of the band tool with it, taking your time with stuff and, and incorporating a lot of mathematics into it and, and so on and so forth. And also like fiat is one of the basic things that, that created pop music, I guess, and uh, catchy two and a half minute songs. And, and But I'm saying that there is genius in the, in those worlds too. Uh, undeniably, they have produced like, let's say if if the the Beatles hadn't had uh, time constraints and, and like someone pushing them to release more singles and, and make more sure. money, uh, so they were sort of forced to just play with one another for for thirteen hours per day, and that made them, you know, the entire the entirety of the Beatles' history spans only seven years. Which to me is so mind really, yeah. I didn't they were a that. band for seven years in total, and the consistent high quality of it is just insane. How how powerful that was, and it, it's hard to tell. I mean, it's before the decoupling of uh, the dollar and gold, so so that's that might have something to to it. Maybe it's more more of a like like productivity being incentivized by by an actual free market that pushes things in the right direction than, than an actual fiat problem. But 
yeah, I, I'd say this, the, what, what art is and how we're supposed to value it and view it is a nuanced debate. And it has many, you can view that from many, many angles. I think there's definitely a proof of work, work aspect of, of art to me. You know, the thing is, is art can be many things to many people. Um, and then some people, you know, like I tend to have a narrow view of, of what I consider to be very, you know, very good and very excellent and what inspires me to kind of do what I do and make, make other things like, so I think, you know, following that aesthetic for, you know, for myself is important. And I think for each person, it's, it's probably different, but I think one of those things that resonate, like you said, where they work together every day for 13 hours, there's, there's a proof of work to, to that. And that's how you get the magic out is by putting that, that that work in e even that little key thing that I made, like I'm looking at right now, I had actually made before I even cut, um, you know, mirrors or anything fancy like that, I actually just cut some cardboard out just to see how it would look. And, you know, actually the first cuts, like I, I saw some things that I was like, okay, this doesn't work. And, and I was actually able to refine it before I even get, got into more expensive materials, just like, like by playing around with things and just, you know, like kind of like learning my way into it. Cause a lot of times I like to do art that's a little above my skill level currently. It's like, okay, I already know how to do that stuff. So I want to push myself a little farther. And that always entails a little bit more learning. So it's like, okay, now we don't know how to do this. So let's see what are the steps here. And you kind of take yourself through, through the process of becoming, you know, a novice and not familiar with it at all. But usually once you do something the first time, there's a magic to that in the sense that you've now, you've gone from zero to one. And that's a huge step. And so once you actually have that zero to one, it, it makes it a lot easier to iterate and kind of yeah. do a better job, find your way with it. Yeah. And that's the proof of work. Like, I, I think people think that artists like now I'm, I'm referring to music artists because I know them better than, than, <laughs> than sculptors and, and, and painters, but, but like uh, a character like Kurt Cobain, for instance, they think he was just spontaneous and didn't put m much work in. But I don't believe that at all. I, I, I believe he put his heart and soul into, into constructing songs from a very early age. And that's the proof of work or Bob Dylan for that matter. They, they probably worked all the time. I know Leonard Cohen was, was, uh, envious of Bob Dylan because he could put out a song in like no time. Uh, whereas Leonard Cohen had to work on it for, for months on end to make it perfect. Like, and, and uh, Dylan wrote the song in two minutes. But the thing is that. Getting to that point where you can write a, a, an excellent song in two minutes, that takes proof. That takes work. Like, uh, yes, it's not only talent. It, it requires you to keep doing what you love for a very long time and thereby be. It's the 10,000 hours thing, I guess, where you become Absolutely. good at something. Creativity fascinates me a lot. And, and also the, the, the commercial aspects of it, because like, if you take a, an artist like Salvador Dali, for instance, who, who, who made a ton of paintings and some of them are brilliant, some of them less so. He, he uh, was in a car crash in France at some point in his career and wrecked the French guy's car completely. Uh, so what he did then, the, the, the French guy got angry with him and ran out of the car and the car wrecked and said like, whatever. And uh, so Dali just went up to the car wreck and signed it. And it immediately became more worth more than uh, it, the new car was worth. Like the, the car was worth when it was new. So, so he, that's he, funny. He had a very good sense of branding. There's another story about, which is very uh, nice about the uh, dilution of, of your brand and of money. This is very nice analogy, but because some of the, the uh, 
great 20th century paintings, they started signing their restaurant receipts. And instead of paying the restaurant bill or the restaurant bills, I mean, and instead of paying the bills, they just signed them. And that signature was worth more than whatever they had eaten until they started doing it too much. And they diluted the value of their, the shit coin that they had created. Absolutely. So, right. So it's such a wonderful metaphor of how everything works. Like there is always a balance between com- commercialism and qu- between quality and quantity, uh, basically. And that's what Bitcoin is. It, 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 uh, removes the, the quantity for, for more quality <laughs> yeah. uh, in everything. So I find that endlessly fascinating and uh, art and, and the, how you sell art and how we value art. Uh, it's so linked to all of that because it's all branding, isn't it? It, It's nothing but branding, but at a very deep level, you can still be like when you create art, when you create something that you truly love to create, you're not doing it for any commercial reasons whatsoever. If you're writing a song or painting a painting or, or uh, making a sculpture, you're, you're not doing it like thinking about all the success and all the money you'll make from it. Like. That, that's not what art, why, why artists do art. You don't become an artist because of that prime, for that primary reason, I believe. And in fact, that can skew, that can skew the quality of what you output. If you're, if you're solely focused on the monetary, you know, reward that you're going to gain from it, because then you start conforming your vision to what you think will sell rather than actually making something that that conforms to what you you would wanted to make in the first place. If if you even did want to make anything, some people do just want to make something because it's a job. Um, and and I totally get that. And there's you know I don't fault anybody for you know being a commercial artist. Like I you know I am that as well. But uh, you know for me, like you said, it's kind of like I'm just gonna make this thing anyways. I don't care like what people think of it. And like nobody's even seen most of the stuff that I've just made that I was telling you about at this point. It's like. You just, you just do it anyways. You're going to make it maybe hopefully somebody will buy it. That'd be awesome. Um, but if not, you know, it is what it is. And you know, like the, the world needed this. And so you create that anyway. So, and then in the end, the world has the output, you know, it has the song, it has the, you know, whatever, you know, you've created a, and that's the proof of work in the end. And I think that's what stands the test of time. And that's why I don't mind like putting in a million mess ups and throwing them all out because in the end it's, you know. It's the result that's going to stand the test of time. And if you make something to last, um, then hopefully, you know, it will. Yeah. And you, you, with your artwork, there's no question about it, that that's the, that's, that's the thing you do better than others. Like there's there's absolutely no question about it. I, I just find it endlessly fascinating because there are so many artists like in the art world and the music world and like movies and whatever that create something great when they're dirt poor. And then they have this massive success and they, they, they're never able to, to get to the, those heights uh, that they sure. once were. Be- because I think they all of a sudden they, they realize that, holy shit, I could late make a lot of money of this. I never thought I would be successful. And then that dilutes their, their sense of why they're doing it. And it becomes commercialized and worse. Like, look at James Cameron, for instance, who made the Terminator. The fucking mm-hmm. Terminator is a great movie, and then Terminator Two is it's great too. And Aliens was great, and then sure. it's just worse, 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 more commercial, more, worse, worse, mm-hmm. worse, like, and more and more awful for each one he releases. So it's like, and and there are so many examples. Uh, 
And I think, I think that's very, that's very true. And I'm, I'm kind, you know, of course, like I worry about that. Um, because you always like, if you make something cool, you want to like still be able to make a cool thing later. No, but it's, it's kind of hard to top yourself if, if you, if you struck gold once. Yeah, definitely. Well, that, that's always going to be the concern. But I think to me, it was more of a motivator once that with the, the Bitcoin thing, but with the Bitcoin as the monetary standard, to me, it was more of like, okay. I was able to create this, people supported it. And, you know, I kind of came out of nowhere with this, like people didn't have any clue who I was before that Bitcoin sculpture thing. So, you know, and like now that I've kind of garnered that, that kind of like support, it's more like a leaping pad instead of something, instead of like a ball and chain that's holding me back. It's more like, okay, yeah. Now let's just make something that's absolutely insane. Like, like how far can we actually take this? So like, I'm thinking, I'm like really having fun with, with that level of it. Like I said, this was kind of, a next level for me where I always wanted to make something that moved. And now I actually have achieved that. And I, it's like, okay, this looks cool, but there's a few things that like you really could do better here. And some of them were more important than others. And I was able to actually go through and just correct each one of those. And it's like, you know, it takes a lot of work to actually go through and make things fit and work and all move together and lock, unlock and all this. But it's like, once you get it working, then it's like, okay, this is, you know, this is okay. Now I got this. Now it's like, where can we go next? So. I think that that's uh, something that Bitcoin gives us that may not be there in the in the fiat world in, in terms of uh, motivation. I mean, I'm not an artist, but uh, but I'm a creative person in Bitcoin, uh, and like the, I think we're all on the same journey, and that's that's also sort of revigorating or whatever you would call it. But it's like we we feed off each other and like we help one another so much, and we do all these collaborative things, and we get inspired by one another. And that in itself, that is a reward in itself because you get to be part of something that's bigger than yourself and a, a movement that is just undeniably good for you. And so, so yeah, I think that the whole one hit wonder thing might not be a thing at all on a Bitcoin standard because it's the other way around. You Like if you get a one hit wonder, uh, you, you don't have to worry about money ever again and you can just focus on your art. Like uh, it's it's beautiful on so many levels. And you get access to, to this group of people that is just awesome. That are supportive and help you grow. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I totally, I totally agree with that in terms of, you know, my own, my own experience, but for sure, I guess I'd like to hear on your side of that as far as like somebody that writes books and, um, you know, overcoming that, okay, I've got one good book. Like you didn't stop writing books, you know, you're still writing and stuff, I would imagine. And, uh, you said you're actually working on a, a fiction one as well for the, the consensus thing. Um, so what are your thoughts on that as well? I'm just curious what you think in terms of, um, you know, creating a a high level thing and then your, your motivation later on. Yeah. I I mean, the first one was successful and then I, uh, wrote the second one a year after and, and, and just tried to reach the same. And of, of course people didn't take notice of that one as much as the first one. And so, so it's, it's been a strange ride, but I continued doing creative stuffs here uh, stuff here and there and then the the everything divided thing happened and that really took off uh, and opened a lot of doors and uh but right now i feel like like i'm i'm uh connected to the best people in the world like what more could i possibly want and <laughs> so 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 right now i'm working on a praxeology book uh, not the fictional fiction book yet i i've uh I'm trying to get inspiration to write fiction, but it's 
just not in me at the moment. Um, I might be writing it together with Nico at some point. We'll we'll see. We'll we'll do the uh, praxeology book first and finish that up. Uh, so uh, and that was like that was also like I wanted to challenge myself to write something that wasn't about Bitcoin, uh, so that I don't mention Bitcoin in the book at all. Uh, of course, it's not so subtly hint- hinting at perfectly sound money at here and there, but but I don't actually use the word Bitcoin in the book, and it's just great to be doing what what you can what you can uh, and contributing in the best way you're able to. Like that's the the contributing part is the is is the the yield. Like uh, like if you love doing creative stuff. And uh, then getting appreciated for it is a bonus, and it makes the next the the next time the next time you do something, uh, you your standards are a bit higher every time. But when you actually start doing the creative thing, and it becomes a thing, and you can see it grow and and getting a life of its own, that that's that's the reward in itself. I think yeah. it, it becomes your little baby, and then you release it into the world, and you see if it survives or not, and. Uh, it's a, it's a, I love every part of the process, except for maybe marketing, <laughs> because I, I don't really have marketing in me, I think. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When you do the self, when you do the, the, the self-employed thing in that sense, then you have to wear many hats and, and learn how, you know, all these things work together for sure. Um, I mean, I had to do with the comics, I, you know, I had to actually figure out how to build a website and put it up there and like integrate BTC pay server so that people could pay with Bitcoin and, uh, you know, remove the fiat option. And so, you know, like you have to wear a lot of hats, even though normally I'm just thinking of myself as an artist, but or a Bitcoiner, but you know, all these things lead down other paths. But I do think that was insightful the, the about the, uh, the, the second book when you said how sometimes people, you know, they don't notice that one as much. So, um, people get jaded in the sense that they become, you know, the, you kind of have to take each each thing to the next level, and I think that's why way I was saying with the with my art, I like to always try to push myself to get to to do something new, and and that's to kind of offset that jadedness that that's out there for even myself. Of like, I I'm the same way where it's like if I kind of produce the same thing over and over again, I'm bored with it, and I don't want to you know interact with it as much. But I think when there's something new and something exciting for people, that it it keeps us. It keeps us as the producers needing to level up. And, and I think that's very awesome for everybody. It's like to the benefit of us all that the Bitcoin community is, is critical and is, is a bit like stingy with praise. Although once it comes out, it's like overwhelming. So, you know, it's like you hit a threshold point, like, oh, no, 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 no. Oh, okay. Now it's like everywhere. So, um, and I think that that, that's another aspect of it as well. There's, there's a community aspect of support that. That once you you crest into that 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 also very useful because it creates a body of work that that becomes referenceable. Because for me, it's like you know whatever I say on Twitter, it's like doesn't really matter. I think that's one level of me, and then the art is separate. Like as far as that, I I don't feel like I need to say anything about the art sometimes because it just it should speak for itself. You know, it truly does. Like. Uh, one thing I'm curious about is like when and why did you decide to make ten full node statues? I mean, though you could see them evolve over time, and then got, they got better and better as as you uh, you know killed your darlings and and removed stuff that was unnecessary, and then added like the yeah. the, uh, the glass and the gold and everything. Like, uh, 
So, so when did you decide on the number 10 and, and why? I know the exact moment. I can tell you exactly why and when. Um, because what, before, I, uh, before I had actually produced any of the physical um, sculptures, I had just the, the schematic map, basically kind of what you saw in the canvases at the, at the conference, where it's basically just the black and white. Here's what, it's, what it looks like uh, drawing. When I had that, I sent it over to Crypto Graffiti because he's always been kind of a mentor to me and giving me a lot of guidance in terms of like, he's always got good ideas and um, very willing to help. And, 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 you know, he was kind of like a really big artist that I looked up to. So I, I was like, you know, I, like at this point, I think at that point, um, probably one of the most expensive pieces I had sold with maybe thousand bucks or 2000 bucks. It was like not a huge amount, but I was like, okay, for this thing, I want to like actually charge like a whole Bitcoin. Like that's my plan here. And I think Bitcoin at that point was like 8,500 bucks or something. So it was like outlandish, like, uh, like this is never going to happen type thing. Uh, you know, I'm never going to actually pull this off, but this is what I wanted to do. And he was like, no, dude, you should, you should do it. Number one. And you should also not just do one. You need to do a series of 10. And I was like, really? I should do a series of 10. I was like, cause even selling one for a Bitcoin seemed like I will never ever do that. You know, so just to think that I can make 10 of them just seemed like really a little overwhelming. But I was like, he's like, yep, you need to do a series of 10. And I was like, okay. So that it was just, it was basically very, very late December of 2019 that I was having this conversation with him right around New Year's time that, that I was having this conversation. Because once I was at that point, I was very close to actually starting my cutting. And I think I had, had finished uh, cutting the pieces by Genesis day of 2020, which was uh, January 3rd in 2020. So. Uh, at that point was when I knew I was going to do the 10. And I'm so glad that I did because I grew so much as an artist from each one to the next one. You know, when I finished the first one, it felt like, oh, this is the best thing I've ever made. And I think I felt like that with each one of them. You know, every time I made one of them, um, I was like, okay, this is the best thing I've ever made. <laughs> yeah, I think I want to ha have that feeling. You can tell from from like seeing seeing them evolve on Twitter, like they, they become more and more awesome for each one. <laughs> Yeah. And the funny thing is, is no one's seen uh, any pictures of number 10 because I finished it and I sent it off. Uh, I sent it off to Mexico uh, before actually getting any Selena's pictures. Got it, really. Yeah. Selena's uh, got it. And, uh, you know, I was actually, I have an invite to go there and take the pictures at, and the videos myself. So I'm, I'm going to go there, but you know, like crossing the borders to the U S has been so sketchy recently. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, you know, so I just haven't done no international travel because of all that. So, uh, one day oh, I'll do it. But yeah, so at this point, like the only person that's even it, seen number 10 is, is him. So I, I still have one cool one to show everybody at some point. International travel is not for the lighthearted post, post COVID. I'm, I'm uh, too much of a risk taker maybe, but I think it's too fun to just travel around and, and, and do stupid shit. I, I love it. So yeah. Yeah. yeah and we're all living in these big gilded cages here. You know, it's like they're different sizes, but you know, it's like bit. It's, yeah. it's just really weird to see, you know, like you, you hear about it, but I don't know. I think it's getting yeah. better and better, but it, you just have to thank God yeah. we got Bitcoin. I think like this thing, uh, Zoom calls uh, and social media and uh, Bitcoin, we have those three things. And now with Noster, it's sort of unstoppable that we can talk to one another. Yes. Uh, and then, which means, uh, wh what I think that means is, Sooner or later, it's going to become obvious to everyone that it's pretty fucking ridiculous that different rules apply to people based solely on where they happen to be born. Like, why is that the case? Why, why, should, why should I 
why should one rule set apply to you in Miami and another to me in Spain here? Like for anything. That's always mind boggled me. Yeah. Uh, And it's just because someone wants to leech value from you. Like someone wants to be in charge and it's an asshole. Like the systems, like I wouldn't say that all politicians are assholes. I I don't believe that's the case. I believe though that they're, they can't see the, the flawed ethics in in what they're doing and why, why they should all just stop. Like, (laughs) uh, I mean, it's so bad in that sense. But, but as I said, the Zoom calls, social media and Bitcoin, that combination of that three trinity of innovation gives me so much hope for humanity because like, how, how do you, how do you pull bullshit off in a world where everyone can talk to everyone and even express value to everyone without, without being hindered? Like you can, you can call out the bad seeds so easily then. Yeah, I was just reading something today on Twitter that was talking about the reason some of the the problems with the banks that we're seeing is happening so fast is that because in 2008, 2009, when we had the great financial crisis happening, we didn't really have, you know, Twitter was not so big and, you know, if, if it even existed and, you know, the social media that we had, it really wasn't financially motivated in the sense that like now you know, something happens in the financial world, it's on Twitter, immediately people are checking it, it's like everybody's linked into it. So, um, you know, with the SVB, I guess, all the people that are, con- they have their money in there, they basically are able to know almost immediately that something's shady with the bank and, hey, I should pull my money out and they can pull their money out basically by going to their phone and initiating a wire transfer. So these type of things happen a lot quicker now than they would have in 2008, where people have to actually go into a branch and actually talk to a manager and pull out money physically and things like that, or initiate the wire by signing something and, you know, in person. So the speed at which these things can happen is accelerated just because like you said, the communications are so drastically increased over the last, you know, 15 years. Yeah. Imagine just, just before the pandemic shall not be named. Uh, <laughs> uh, happened. Zoom calls uh, or video conferencing was was bad, really bad. No one yeah. did it because it was bad. It lagged, uh, connection problems, like audio lag, like all all sorts of problems with it. And now it's just like working flawlessly on every platform, and every platform has in- integrated video calls. You and me, Fractal, and and Luke also at this point, we're connected. To like, imagine, you know, about Kevin Bacon numbers, like how many steps actors are, are connected to one another on IMDB and some, some university student did like the, 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 the longest chain they could find was someone who had Kevin Bacon number seven, which means that they were, they were in a movie with an actor that was in a movie that was an actor that was in a movie seven steps to Kevin Bacon. That's like the longest distance they could find. And it's some, it's some obscure Indian actor, an extra in an Indian movie for that no one ever heard of. And they could still find a connection to, to Kevin Bacon in, five, in seven steps. And that was extremely rare, seven steps. Most people had like four, four or five steps. And imagine, uh, uh, this goes not for only actors, but, but everyone in the world, like, how many steps are, are, are we from, say, uh, Xi Jinping in, in, in China? Let's think. We both know, sort of know Michael Saylor. <laughs> or if you have a number one Michael Saylor number, uh, I have at least a two. 
and uh, Luke has a three, and he probably knows uh, someone who knows Biden. So that's four and five then. Uh, maybe he even knows Biden. Who knows Xi Jinping? So there were six steps from him uh, sure. at max. Like, and, and this goes for every person on earth. Like if I try to like, uh, how close is my mother to, to uh, Emmanuel Macron? And I would say like, she's, there's the connection to me, connection to, well, Prince of Serbia or President of Madeira. There, there you go. And, and, and then it's just two, two more hops and you're probably at the Mania of Macron. So we're like four or five steps from every other person on earth. And we're, everyone's accessible by the click of a button and a message here and where, here or there to, or a phone call here and there to someone who knows someone. And you can probably land a gig like this with, with, with like anyone. I mean, Look at the, look at our pod, Luke. We we've we gotten to talk to a lot of big people, and then you look at uh, someone like Peter McCormack or Breedlove or whoever other Bitcoin podcaster. Breedlove has had so many people on from from outside of the Bitcoin space that are big big names, but he he started the way the way we're starting now, or the way anyone else of these people started. It's just you know. Reaching out to people, talking to them, and and making it happen. If that's your I mean, intent, he, he started with ten, with ten episodes of Sailor, so he's he's special. Yeah, yeah, and that was a, a boost for him. But 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 I'm not really talking about only podcasters here. Like uh, podcasters have a uh, uh, like are motivated to 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 grow this giant network of people and do this. I mean, we're. We're not mainly, uh, or at least I'm not, my first and foremost job is not to be a podcaster. I do, do this just to keep in touch with the network, to talk to, to my friends. Like, so, so the point I'm trying to make is that even if we're not, if we don't want to be connected to everyone else on earth, we sort of are. And, and that it's insanely powerful how much that unlocks really when you, when you think about it and what you can do with that. It's, uh, and how, how much it will reveal bullshit as being bullshit over time. So People think- that know how to leverage that is also uh, going to be a, 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 an important skill because being able to realize that, hey, I'm only this, this far away from this person that I need to contact or this person that I'm interested in contacting. And really those steps are so decreased, um, you know, nowadays that people are online and you can get emails and um, Twitters and DMs and stuff like that. So. Uh, there's just, you know, sometimes just being able to ask for the help is the most important thing to say, Hey, you know, this is something I'm trying to do. And I, you know, I think a lot of people will be surprised at how much response that they'll get. But another thing that that brought, brought me up to thinking in terms of just the way that we're all connected by, you know, you said almost uh, four or five steps, Bitcoin nodes, their default. I don't know if they've just recently changed this, but the default is that you connect to eight peers and I've just always been... Yeah, I just always been amazed that even though you're only connected to eight peers, you know, like when I submit a transaction, it's like fucking instant that the rest of the network knows about it. You know, like even though yes. I'm connected to eight, they're yeah. connected to eight. And it's like you you hit send and okay, you have the little butterflies or whatever and okay, it sends and stuff. And then uh, you see it go out and whatever. But it's like then, I mean, it's like as soon as you look it up on a, an Explorer or whatever, or, you know, your friends like looking, okay, I see it in the mempool. It's like instantaneous, even though, it, yes, it takes the 10 minutes to fully confirm, like it's in the mempool 
And like the whole network is aware, like almost instantaneously, even though there's only those eight original connections that you have. So I think that just speaks to that, like, if we emulate our Bitcoin nodes in some way, it's like we realize that we can connect out to the rest of the world just almost instantaneously by by connecting to our peers in that, that same way. It's a little more manual, but you know. Yeah, it's pretty powerful, isn't it? And uh, like I said, it makes me insanely optimistic for the future. Even though I think this is like the end of the fiat era, it, it might be tumultuous and, and happen faster when we think. But it gives me hope that we have these connections and that we're all like, I mean, everyone's connected to a Bitcoiner. They might, might not know it, but everyone is. I, yeah. I, I would say, how many people on earth have more than two steps to a Bitcoiner? Right. Is there, is yeah, there even that a, number yeah. is decreasing, which is amazing to yeah. think about. And that's an accelerating. And, and if you do, when the fiat system crashes and we realize that we have to flee to Bitcoin, Bitcoin's value goes up, uh, purchasing power goes up uh, insanely fast. And uh, when it does, you will be able to provide for your extended family and all your friends if needed. Uh, like, like it's, it's, it's just too good to be true. So that's why people have a hard time believing it. But that's really the, uh, how, how else would it play out? I, I just sure. don't see it. And I think there's like always been an interesting dichotomy with the number of people that hold Bitcoin in relation to the number of people that understand Bitcoin. You know, because there's a lot of people that know about Bitcoin that, you know, they haven't taken the step to actually buying any or anything. But then there's a whole cohort of people that have actually gone out and they purchased it on an exchange or something and they own it. They just have zero clue what the heck they have. Um, whereas then you have the, the Bitcoin only contingent where you have people that have kind of thought about it long enough and they've made the evaluation and say, okay, this is, this is where the value prop is. We want to really increase, I think that, that Bitcoin only. Uh, group so that the number of steps between you and a Bitcoin only person is very reduced, not just only, not just only a Bitcoin person, but somebody who's going to, you know, direct you correctly away from too much shitcoininess because, you know, that's the problem is that you just, man, I know I go to a lot of these barbecues or something. I honestly just try to not talk about it too often, but sometimes this stuff comes up and these people are all like, oh, you know, we're traders. And it's like, oh, what do you trade? And they're all trading these weird shitcoins and like, the dog coins and other things. It's like, like you're a grown up person, and this is what she's doing yeah, yeah. over here. But, yeah, but but it's to me, it's it's very reminiscent of the poker boom, like 15 years back, because 99 percent of those who were in it are are just losers. They're just going to lose money, and they're going to learn their lesson and not play those stupid games anymore. Or maybe they won't. And but but then again, <laughs> they'll have nothing, no influence in oh in the future so so that's like it's a it's a problem that sorts itself itself out over time for sure absolutely yeah i definitely think it sorts itself out and maybe a more positive way to look at it is almost like waves cresting that like you know like it's like (laughs) over time like the people like learn their lessons with the shitcoinery and they kind of like move into that bitcoin only space so either that or they get scared and they move out of the space altogether with you know everybody's got a different risk tolerance and not everybody's geared for this i think Harking back to, to what you said about uh, the crash in 2008 and how Twitter hadn't really taken off and we didn't have some mm-hmm. calls and so on. If you rewind the tape even further, so when I grew up, I grew up in the 80s. So, uh, so, uh, so I'm born mid, mid-70s. I, I, uh, I'm not going yeah, to me too. Uh, oh, you are? Okay. So I didn't have to dox you there. <laughs> so 
When we grew up in the 80s in, in Sweden, which was like between what was called the two superpowers, the, U, the US and the Soviet Union, we had three state-run radio channels and two state-run TV channels. All big newspapers, state-subsidized, still are, by the way. And that, the thing is, that's the only communication we had with the outside world at all. Uh, which is yeah, w- when you when you think about it that way, like I grew up in that environment. We were allowed to watch cartoons once a year on Christmas Eve. That's when they uh, they broadcast uh, Donald Duck for for an hour, like once a year. Wow, <laughs> we at least had Saturday morning cartoons when I was growing up. So so it was better in the U.S. of course because uh, but still. The U.S. was also sort of a gated community and, and still is in many ways. You, you don't get that much cultural input from the rest of the world. <laughs> but the thing is, like, how, how fast we've advanced just as a network, uh, if you view our species as a network, like how, how Metcalfe's law has played out on, on humans, humans being the communications network themselves. Like, it, it's just insanely powerful you know the value of the communications network is equal to the square of its number of users it's just insanely powerful and we are human beings and we are bitcoin we we all are uh and now now it's the value of that network is also the number its number of users squared and it's just insane how powerful that is is if you uh take into account all the uh, all the new means of communication we have now. Absolutely. Well, you know, this kind of thinking of the humanity as a network and kind of like growing over time and, and whatnot brings me back to the, uh, the, the Time Chain Codex comic that I wrote. If I can uh, show my free comic to everybody for a minute, uh, you could read show it on, away. you can read it on Twitter, the entire thing. Uh, it's free to check out. But really what, what I'm pointing to here is that it talks about Bitcoin into the future. So we have where we are now today, but where is this going to bring us? You know, what, what does having a sound money that people can save in and pass down to generations, what does this do to humanity and, and where does this kind of take us from here? And, you know, in the comic book, it's basically a reimagining of, uh, of some articles that are written by Drew Van Saul called Bitcoin Astronomy, where he explores these, these really far out ideas about moving off of the planet and into other, you know, into other number one planets and galaxies and, and solar systems and, and how Bitcoin can incentivize that through basically just in, in essence, anywhere people can harvest energy. If there's a time chain that they can connect to and transact with, then, you know, based on this Bitcoin hard money uh, thing that happened on Earth, other people can kind of go out and be incentivized to explore the galaxies because there's a, there's a, a thing about being distant. So people on Earth can mine Bitcoin, but as soon as we go off to Mars, um, there's a bit of a time lag in between Earth and Mars. So if people are on Mars and they're mining Bitcoin, if they want to submit a block, it's going to take between three and 20 minutes for that block to get to Earth. So um, they're basically going to get beat by an Earth miner who doesn't have to submit with that huge time lag. Basically, as I was saying, if you submit it to the mempool, it's instantaneously transmitted through Earth because of the speed of light and the way that that, that data transmits th- through that. Um, so as soon as the people go to Mars, in essence, the question becomes, do they use Bitcoin or do they have to create their own sovereign currency on the planet? 
And, you know, his argument is that, yes, they should create you know, or they do create and whether it's a good idea or not, you know, and they have this time of shit coinery where like, you know, the, the one true coin hasn't emerged yet in Mars. And then over time, you know, like the, the, the hard money beats out all other monies and then they actually have a Mars coin. And, um, there's even people on earth that say, Hey, maybe we want to mine Mars coin too, but then they can't again, because there's this time lag. And so there's a little the bit of a defense. Hash horizon. The hash horizon. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there's like a little bit of defense that occurs by being far away from other people. And the benefit is that those people on Mars, they were the first people to create Mars coin. So it's like kind of getting to create Bitcoin from the beginning. So there's a benefit to that. So, so that benefit of being able to create the first time chain within your, your local geographic area incentivize these people to go find new habitable worlds because then they can kind of like enrich themselves and their future generations from that. So it kind of pushes humanity out into the stars. And I think that that's a really neat thing. And so, you know, and then as we start getting farther and farther, people create time chains that then can act on longer time scales so that you can actually interact and buy things like planets or solar systems or whatever it is with these really long uh, time preferences. Yeah, if you haven't seen the the comic, you should definitely check it out. It's free online, as Rectal says. So, uh, uh, link in the show notes, and it's uh, it's absolutely stunning. Uh, yeah, you, you, I remember the first time you showed it to me. You sent me like I made this little side project. Uh, it's it's a bit. I've been cheating a bit and using a bit of AI, and it's like the most stunning comic I've ever seen in my life. So it's like, yeah, magic stuff. But anyway, I think this is a good note to, to, to stop this conversation on. Uh, Fractal, thank you so much for coming on. And uh, it's always a pleasure to chat to you. Looking forward so much to, to, to giving you more hugs in Miami. <laughs> Even more hugs this year than last year. Like Absolutely, always... man. I'm definitely looking forward to it. We've got to do it again sometimes. Yeah, I, I always say that Bitcoin conferences with other Maxis is like the closest thing to a gay experience a straight man will ever get to. <laughs> because of all the oh yeah we did see that we did see that uh yeah the conference out there that's funny <laughs> yeah anyway uh yeah so take care and um we'll see each other in a couple of months and good luck with everything of course awesome thank you luke do you have anything to add by the way only thing is uh where can people find you fractal uh you find me on twitter fractal encrypt and i do have a website now finally i didn't have that before but as i mentioned earlier it's timechainartifacts.com. Check out my art there. Wonderful. We'll put all that in the description. As uh, Knut said, thanks so much for joining us, Fractal. Much appreciated. Okay. Bye-bye. It's been Sweet. the Freedom Footprint Show. Thanks for listening.